And thanks to Cryer Malt, local malt for local beer, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer bloke, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. Thanks for the um, invitation. And uh, g'day, listeners. Good to be back. Oh, Matt, it's, it's a standing invitation. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just nice to be thanked for those things. That's very true. Even if it is a social nicety, it is a nicety. Uh, mate, how's your week been? Been up to much this week? A lot happening in Melbourne? Um, the Anzac Day weekend, which became a long weekend for some of us because one of my school-aged children had the Monday off as a, as a curriculum day, personal development day for the teachers, which is a regular one. And we also had my eldest daughter's 22nd birthday, so which is today as we record. So we had uh, family round and um, it was a little bit like the last couple of weeks where we sort of cooked for the masses, which was a lot of fun. Now... Does your 22-year-old share your interest in all things good beer? Uh, she does follow Brews News uh, on social media, so I, you know, she keeps up up to date. But no, she's not a she's not a beer drinker. That's interesting. Does she enjoy wine? Does I, I don't want to get too much into the uh, Pilsner uh, family personal life. Yeah, no, no, not not particularly. She's an a, you know an occasion drinker. If she's going out with the friends, she might have a you know, a nice you know a vodka um, or a glass of bubbles, but that's about it. There you go. Well, uh, happy birthday to the eldest Pilsner. Hopefully you uh, have a good time. Actually, what are you cooking up? I, I do enjoy the regular Facebook posts that you post with beers matched to your local uh, food providors. Yeah, yeah. No, we had um, we had a bit of... Uh, ri- I do like a bit of ribeye on the bone, just getting away from beer a little bit. But I think, you know, there are just so many nice beers, particularly as the weather gets a bit cooler, that, that really go well with that sort of thing. And uh, we tend to enjoy seafood here as well, so... There's a bit of that, a bit of everything. Oh, so you'll be having a red beer for your ribeye? Ah, well, I, I didn't receive any. Uh, I don't know. Did 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 the uh, did the beer fairy deliver some to Bruce News HQ? From uh, you're talking, of course, about the the, the James Bogues Epicurean range. Yes, the James Bogue. Or are you um, simplistically referring to re- beer that is red in general? Well, isn't that uh, or, or both? <laughs> isn't that the middle section of the Venn diagram? Uh, because that is the James Bogues approach to to beer. So no, I am investigating that story a little bit further, and hopefully next week we'll be able to have some information. Uh, you yeah, know, we can sort of talk a little bit further about the James Bogues approach to food. But uh, everyone who will have heard it, was it last week we talked about it? Uh, yeah, we might have broken it the week before, I think, when it yeah. first came out. Oh, mate, after, after 122 episodes, they're all running in together. Exactly. And look, two weeks down the track, I'm still none the wiser. I've been struggling to find online any detailed information about either of the two beers other than the red is an amber. But I don't know whether it's an amber ale or an amber lager or an amber wheat beer. An amber stout? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> an amber new an amber New England IPA. It could be for all I know. Or it could just be a new style, a La Pacific Ale, where they've just riffed on a theme and just come up with a flavour that doesn't really naturally fit within any style. We don't we yeah. don't know. Now, all the wonderful flavours now available in red. <laughs> So, yeah, well, and it, they didn't talk too much uh, from memory about whether it was hop forward or malt forward or yeast forward to get the particular qualities that make the red meat go with the red beer. So, anyway, hopefully we will find out a little bit more. But uh, whilst the James Bogues Epicurean Beer Ferry didn't arrive today, I did have a beer ferry arrive this week, Prof. Yes. As I believe uh, you did as well. Well, thank me later. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the beer that we're talking about? Uh, yeah, no, I got a call from uh, Sam Fuss, who um, has been a guest on Brews News a couple of times, I think, and just a just a great all-round beer person. I think most people who have uh, been around the traps long enough uh, will have been 
uh, in the very nicest possible way, exposed to Sam Fuss and her great work. So Little Creatures, originally, she had um, she was the head brewer at a couple of brew pubs in, in Melbourne early on in the, in the craft beer renaissance and then went on to True South, where she was for quite a while, the head brewer there, uh, and most recently at uh, Young Henry's up in Newtown. So she has got together with a couple of other blokes in Marrickville to create uh, fi- I nearly said fist, filter, filter brewing with a PH and XPA. Sorry, Sam. And yeah, so she gave me a call during the week and, uh, and said, give us a flick us your address and I'll um, like to send you some beer. And uh, can you give me Matt's address and I'll send him some beer as well. So she did. Matt, that was nice to send it to both of us for a change. So we, we both got to try the, uh, the free samples. Maybe she listens to Brews News. Maybe she does. Mate, we didn't get a chance to get Sam on because I, I did want to dig a little bit deeper into it because the beer was delightful. It was just a really, really nicely balanced. XBA is a style that's been developing a little bit recently that uh, still doesn't really have a firm stylistic description. It sits somewhere in the nether regions or nether world, that lost ground between American pale ales and India pale ales. Got a lot of hop action, probably a little bit more malt action, slightly paler. But again, beyond saying that, it really is, it's the constitution, it's the vibe of the thing for a style. Would you agree? Yeah, up to a point. This this one's confusing me, um, I have to say, because I think... This beer or this style? A bit of both. And we're, okay. so it, Well, the style and therefore where this beer sort of fits into it. So for me, pouring it, I would have said that's an extra pale, as in colour. And at 4.2, it's a session ale. So yep. why wouldn't you call it a session ale? I think the issue might be, and, and season... I guess, you know, people, let's say beer professionals like ourselves, uh, probably can work around it. But I, I'm, I'm concerned for the average punter who has perhaps, uh, say, had uh, Bolter XPA or Wolf of the Willows XPA or even Riders XPA, because this is a, a category, I think, that, um, yeah, it can be a bit confusing. Uh, and I think this one's quite different, perhaps, to, to some of those others. Yeah, I mean, look, I, to, to, to drink it. And, it, and it's funny because you're sort of talking about things other than, you know, without drilling down and sort of going, well, I've got kumquats and granite and stuff like that. It, it's reminiscent of an XPA in the Bolter style, but at 4.2%, um, you're going to be getting a lot less body coming through than Bolter, which I think from memory is five on the dot. And to me, it's a very, very similar beer, but just with that, you know, everything is beautifully imbalanced, but everything's just turned down that extra little yeah. bit to get it within that 4.2% alcohol. But, you know, I, I immediately recognised it as that flavour profile and the malt profile and it had that, you know, it wasn't a golden ale in the sense of, you know, a James Squire's golden ale or some of the golden ales going round, but it was at the lower end of what I would regard an XPA to be. But it was a, just a, a, a delightful beer. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, I think the risk is that it, it gets confused with the XPAs that are playing in that space that is, uh, it's, it's, mm not an American pale. It's not big enough to be an IPA, um, but it's kind of it's kind of IPA-ish, but it's not, it doesn't have the alcohol for the purists to recognise it as an IPA, so we'll call it XPA, whereas some are, yeah, it's it's extra pale in colour. So it's, look, I think it's a great style, and I think the, you know, X, the whole X factor in, in terms of the marketing, uh, I think at least gets people interested in, oh, hang on, okay, so it's not an ale, not a lager, it's an XPA, I'll, you know, I might give that a try. Um, what did you think of the packaging? Well, again, this is all the stuff I wanted to speak to Sam about because it reminded me of Evil Knievel's leather suit. It had, you know, like lots of, you know, I'm colourblind, but to me it was, you know, white, blue and silver and, um, you know, sort of very 1970s. And then it turned up in a styrofoam esky, the sort of thing that I used to take to the cricket when I was playing cricket in the under 11s, um, which was well and truly in the 70s. Um, so I wasn't sure what look they were going for. Have I read that correctly? 
Well, for those playing along at home who aren't colourblind, the colours are, in fact, white, silver and blue. Ah, so I was right. So well done, Matt. Oh, there, there you go. So there you go. So it's 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 not excluding, um, you know, uh, differently coloured, visually abled <laughs> people, which is good. Yes. So well, it gets a you know, not that I'm handicapped or anything like that, but uh, but it did remind me uh, of that 1970s. You know, if it had a few stars on, it would have been very much. I think Evil Knievel had some red on his. Outfit as well, because it was red, white, and blue. Yeah, it was American white. Yeah. yeah, American flag. Interestingly, I've shown the can to quite a few people, and I got, a, I got an initial impression when I first saw pictures. And the first thing that struck me was the use of diagonals. So I think in in a, a an increasingly crowded shelf space, that'll pop because all the others are kind of going for either a, a you know a logo, an image, a picture, um, you know, funky artwork, yep. graffiti style, whatever it might be, or, uh, and again, to use Bolter, which I think absolutely nails it, simplicity, colour, box, what is it, I can see it, who's it by, I can see that. It's clean lines and clear. This one, the, the filter is on the diagonal, I think will probably catch the eye because I think it's probably the only one that's going for that. But getting back to the ones that I've shown it around to, because my initial impression was 1980s American supermarket brand Lager. Spot on. Yep. And then reading the cover notes that came with it, they are intentionally going for that kind of retro sort of look. So I, I feel better about that, that that is actually what they're trying to do because I thought they might have missed the mark on that one initially, but they were doing it deliberately. So well done to them. It sounds like we've had exactly the same impressions um, because I actually experienced uh, cognitive dissonance between a really contemporary style but a really old school packaging. And when I was first trying to think, what does this remind me of? And your description is perfect. 1970s or 1980s uh, American uh, supermarket brand beer. And I was sort of trying to think of you know what it was. And I actually went and Googled the the old Norm Life Bennett commercials because that was about the time and the vintage that I was thinking. And I thought, you know, is that the look that going for and because I, I just sort of was trying to picture the can that was in his hand yeah um, and it wasn't because it was a logo but it was still the same colors and, and, and all of that so yeah so yeah it is really a um an interesting contrast between that old look but a very contemporary style and as you said um, something that's going to stand out on the shelves because no one is doing it at the moment yeah. and it'll be very interesting to see that if it does succeed how quickly everyone's doing it as seems to be the way of uh, things at the moment yeah i did also have a couple of friends who looked at it and said oh, it's like fosters which was interesting and i don't know whether that was the color palette or or the style well i guess so yeah, ho hopefully that... that doesn't work against it but then again it may maybe that gets uh you know it's a session beer so maybe you know fosters drinkers things are oh, you know Maybe they've upgraded, you know, updated their the image, and I'll I'll give those a go. Oh, hang on, it's not Foster's, but I like it anyway. Hmm. Look, I, I agree. I, I think you're spot on. But uh, now, do you know where it's being brewed? Has Sam got a brewery yet, or are they uh, contracting at the moment? Um, you said they're at Marrickville. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. Um, as in that's where the where the business is based. But but no, they they don't have a brewery, as far as I know. Yeah. That that may have changed. Um, but my information is that they're um gypsy brewing it at the moment. Again. That doesn't affect the quality in any way, and it's not a brand that's uh, trading on a place or anything like that. So that was just purely, a, I was just interested. Um, it wasn't a uh, loaded question. No, no, no. Now, Prof, there's not been a lot of news that really grabbed my attention this week. Have you seen anything this week? No, it's been a bit quiet for news. Everyone's sort of, I think, been behaving themselves, haven't they? And 
carrying on as normal? Yeah, there's been a little bit of interest in the discussion about Goose Island that we I think we touched on it last week, um, and we posted I posted a media release that Goose Island has launched, and it seems to have launched quite extensively in Melbourne last week. There's been a, a little bit of angst from people who are concerned about independence in craft beer. You know that questioning whether it can be a craft beer given that it's owned by the world's largest um, brewing company and you know whilst again we've talked about all of that and if you don't care about ownership and you just care about quality it may matter less and my view is very much that it's the transparency of the ownership that matters because that lets consumers decide what matters to them and that's just the one thing I've noticed with Goose Island is that the narrative that you're reading through all of the stuff is the owners um, of Goose Island talk about well, you know, we were, we've been with the company since it started and, you know, our partnership with AB InBev, you know, which sounds like it's, you know, the neighbour popping next door to borrow a cup of sugar. We were collaborating um, as opposed to we were 100% bought out by the world's biggest brewer, which actually makes us part of the world's biggest brewer as opposed to a partner with. Yeah, yeah. And I think too, because and this is a little bit different because I guess Goose Island had established its credibility as a inverted commas craft brand. Um, and very strongly independent in craft and and quality and um, you know interesting beers tending to sort of the hop forward side of things. So it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, because it was a very astute purchase from ABMF, and it sounds like in, in the way that they've managed it, they haven't stepped all over it and changed what it was. And it sounds like some of the beer. Again, I, I'm only going as a as an observer who's been monitoring this through media feeds. It sounds like they've introduced a lot of sort of less assertive beers in addition to their original beers and that the beer, the original beers haven't changed too much and people who know and love the brand you know, can't fault the beer, as you would expect for a brand that's owned by AB InBev that's looking for a broader market. So it'll be interesting to see how CUB, which has had some very good brands as well, but just doesn't seem to have been able to execute. And this is really the first brand that we're seeing the new CUB under the AB InBev ownership launch um, in, in Australia. So we'll see whether, you know, under that guidance or tutelage, CUB is a little bit better at curating or cultivating that brand than they have been with some of their own brands. But I will direct readers to a story that a reader, not a listener, shared uh, in the notes when I posted the media release. Firstly, he made the point of saying this reads like an ad which kind of it did because it was a media release. It wasn't paid, but it was an interesting national news story that we've covered. And uh, just so listeners know, if we do post something as a media release, what we're signalling there is that this is the story that's come from the brewery. We haven't vetted it. We haven't filtered it. It's just going out because we think that the story itself is of interest. And if we do put a filter or question any of the claims in it that is clearly labeled so if it's just labeled media release that is an unfiltered story that comes straight out from the brewery and you put that through your own filter you judge any claims as you would when you read an ad but it's not a paid ad so it's just the standard release to let people know what the official line from the brewery is and yeah so so there's a little questioning about that but then he also then posted an interesting story about goose island which is launched in china and some of the stuff that's been going on there in the highly deregulated or not least Chinese market. So I might get Bray to post that in the show notes because it was quite an interesting read about how they uh, carried on uh, or or some of the things that they've done in the uh, Chinese market. But uh, apart from that, Prof, anything else come up this week, come across your desk, anything interesting, new or noteworthy? No, no, nothing I can think of. 
Cool. Well, we might get in, as I said last week, because of the time difference between Australia and Denver. Uh, I caught up with Bart Watson very early in the morning, my time, uh, very late in the afternoon, his time, and uh, had a bit of a chat about all things American craft beer and statistics and growth and future projections. So without any further ado, we might go in and listen to my chat with Bart Watson from the Brewers Association. And Bart Watson, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. And I, I guess I should start with our uh, general first question. Who is Bart Watson? Uh, well, I'm Chief Economist at the Brewers Association. We're a national not-for-profit here in the United States representing small and independent craft brewers. And I'm the guy who does the numbers. And what sort of uh, numbers do you look at? And how did you get into the job? It's obviously when people enter the craft beer world, Chief Economist for the Brewers Association isn't the number one thought that springs to mind. Yeah, it's certainly a, a unique position in the industry. Um, I was I was a professor before. I was teaching at uh, the University of Iowa, and I came across the Brewers Association doing a, a lecture on excise taxes, and and found the job and thought it'd be interesting. I was a um, you know a, a beer enthusiast myself, and I applied, and and they gave it to me. And and now I you know I, I wear many hats here at the association, but um, I oversee a lot of our data collection efforts. We try to survey our members and, and get a handle on what's going on in the U.S. brewing industry every year. Uh, so I lead that survey effort. Um, I also do a lot of work on government affairs, so trying to come up with an analysis that supports you know, our case that small and independent brewers are great for the economy, they're great for creating jobs. Um, so I do a lot of economic impact analysis and, and things like that, as well as just generally trying to help our members you know, uh, with with good data and make better business decisions. It's an interesting uh, idea because th- there is so much talk about the craft side of craft brewing, but having a chief economist and having that sort of business starter really um, affirms that these are businesses and it, it, it's a very important industry. Yeah, no, completely. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of passionate members who, you know, know a ton about beer, you know, and they know a lot about brewing, um, and, you know, we want to make it sure that as many of them can succeed as possible. Um, you know, they're going to do the best on the beer end, and we, we provide resources there on the technical side as well. But um, I think as we get more and more competitive, you know, over 5,000 breweries here in the U.S., it's more important that they understand the business side, they understand what's going on in the market, um, and that they, they understand that it's not just about growing, brewing great beer, um, but you also have to, to understand uh, your place in the market economy. Now, you've just come out of the Craft Brewers Conference, uh, which is the Brewers Association's annual, uh, I guess, information sharing and uh, skills development event. Is that the best way to describe it? Yeah, you know, and it's a a networking event. It's a chance to see old friends. I mean, we have 13,000 people there involved in the brewing industry here in the U.S. So um, there's lots of parts, you know, certainly skills, information is, is part of it, but, you know, lots of other great events and, and really a chance just to network and, um, you know, learn some new things over a beer. And you gave a bit of a State of the Union speech for the craft beer sector. Can you just give us a quick pricey of the presentation that you gave? How are things going for the uh, small independent brewers in the United States? Sure. Well, I think it's a little bit more of a mix than it used to be in the past. Um, you know, part of that is that, um, you know, craft brewing here in the U.S. is becoming a little bit of a victim of its own success. We're you know, seeing that market share rise. Um, we're also seeing the, the number of breweries really explode. And that means that in, you know, many of the leading markets and, you know, the U.S. in many ways is, is so big, it's, you can't think of it as just one market. There's, there's lots of different regions of the country and, and they're on very different points in their development. So, you know, one of the points that we tried to make in our state of the industry was to, 
you know, help people think a little bit more about where the growth is by business model, by style, by region, and that while there's still growth out there, you know, 6% growth is very impressive given how large the industry is and, you know, the overall state of the U.S. economy, um, people are going to have to work a little bit harder to find it. And so, and so you really need to understand your place in, in the industry and, and what your strategy is. There are well over 5,000 breweries, but a sobering statistic was the number that are in planning. And I think it's in anything up to 2,000 breweries are currently in planning at the moment. Yeah, 2,000 plus. We have uh, our federal agency here, the TTB, that tracks breweries in the United States, um, now counts over 7,700 active licenses. So if there's, you know, 5,300 breweries that are already operating, you know, that's a, that's a difference of 2,400. Um, and, you know, some of those maybe will never open, but, you know, that's probably 2,000 breweries that are going to open in the next couple of years. Is that a concerning statistic or is it an exciting statistic or can it live in both worlds? I think it can live in both worlds. And, you know, one of the things I always try to stress to people is you really have to understand what those breweries are going to look like. Um, you know, if they're all going to try to be big production breweries, I mean, that's a problem. But if they're going to be small, they're going to be locally focused, um, you know, then I think it's less of an issue. And hopefully they'll bring, you know, more excitement, you know, more innovation, um, and they'll focus everyone to, to raise their game. One of the statistics that you gave uh, during your presentation is uh, that the, I think there were 98 closures in 2016, which was up a little bit, but it was still much less than the, you know, I, I think in restauranting, you know, there's a 50% closure rate in one or two years. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. You know, and I, I think you can think of this, again, both ways. You know, we have seen it rise. Um, you know, 100 closings is, I mean, you know, that's a challenge for those 100 businesses for sure. Um, but at the same time, that rate uh, remains very, very low, you know, whether you compare it to restaurants or just overall business startups. Um, you know, breweries have had a great run of it here in the United States. You know, we've seen increasing demand. Beer lovers clearly, you know, really excited about the small brewery business model, and, and that's created a lot of opportunities. And, you know, one of the other things I, I'm trying to do is really set expectations going forward that, you know, we've had a run of, of five to 10 years where basically everyone has succeeded. And, while I th still think there's lots of opportunity and there's lots of reason for optimism going forward, um, you know, you can't beat the odds and not everyone can stay in business forever. So uh, if we do see that closing number rise, it, it wouldn't be unexpected. I don't mean to be cynical, but isn't a figure like that that is so below the average for business closings, isn't that almost a sign that there is something of a bubble going on? You know, uh, what, what was the word... Um, uh, exuberance, uh, un unrealistic exuberance, that it's a little bit like buying property in a growing property market that everyone makes money because the, the market's going up, but it's when the market does start to pause, that's when bad purchasing decisions have been, you know, get, get found out. Is, is that a little bit the same with, with craft beer? The, the lack of closures um, or the statistically low number of closures almost shows that craft beer is a, is, is a rapidly growing industry? Well, it's certainly rapidly growing, but, you know, in, in terms of talking about it as a bubble, you know, I would give two caveats. The first is that we've seen an increase in demand. You know, if you look back 10 years, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't enough demand to support all of these breweries. But now, you know, beer lovers in the U.S., they want local, they want fuller flavor, they want more variety. And so there's, that's created more opportunities for more breweries to open. Um, you know, I mean, you can think about this in terms of, you know, other industries that, you know, before we had cars, there wasn't room for a lot of gas stations. But, you know, suddenly when there's demand, you know, you can you can have a lot more succeed and you can have a, a number that grows rapidly and, and the vast majority can stay in business up to a point. Um, you know, the second thing, and I'll go back to, you have to understand what these breweries look like. So, 
in the U.S. Um, in in 2015, for instance, last year we have full government data. 75% of the breweries in the U.S. were less than a thousand barrels. So barrels barrels a little bit more than a hectoliter. Um, so I think it's 1.17 hectoliters. So you know the vast majority of these breweries are very very small, and you know collectively make less than you know a regional craft brewery. They make less than you know one percent of what AB makes here in the U.S. So that brewery number doesn't mean a lot until you put in the context of how much those those breweries are making and and most of them are filling this new niche of a you know a very small local brewery or brew pub that sells a pretty high percentage on on site and that's something that really didn't exist five or ten years ago and that's why I do think closings will rise I mean I think you're right there but um, you know this is something new and different and I think there's demand for it so we're going to see you know opportunities for businesses that are well run and make high quality beer I think there's going to be opportunities going forward for them. And I guess that's where it's hard from speaking from the other side of the world where our market is very, very different. We seem to have a much higher cost base. The government share of uh, the beer cost is, is much higher, particularly for higher alcohol beers um, because the government punishes higher alcohol beers. So uh, even if there is a taste for IPAs, um, the economics make it harder um, for brewers to make the American style six, seven, eight percent IPA. So it can be a little bit hard comparing the local market. But I would have thought down here that a brewery that's that small is almost uneconomic just on its turnover. Like a, a thousand barrel brewery can make a reasonable living in the states. Yeah, you know, if they're selling, you know, a high percentage direct, I think they can. And you know, one one thing we're seeing is we're seeing a shift for for mo- most of these very small breweries where, you know, distribution and, you know, selling in, in package stores or in other restaurants is part of their model, but a lot of it is is being sold directly on site. And, you know, if you're selling, you know, even less than that, you know, if you're selling 500 hectoliters direct to the consumer, um, you know, and getting that, that margin that that allows, you know, I, I think we're seeing that that can be a successful model here in the States given, you know, albeit a very reg- different regulatory environment with a little bit lower tax and, and you know, advantages relative to large brewers. So, you know, we don't have differential taxes based on ABV in, in most places, um, though it varies a little state to state, but certainly don't nationally. So, you know, you can be selling, um, you know, uh, an 8% IPA and, and, you know, be very cost competitive, um, you know, to a, to a large brewer. Is that putting pressure with the shift to cellar brewery, cellar doors? Is that putting pressure on maybe the suburban bar or the, the neighbourhood bar? Are people moving from the more catch-all neighbourhood bar and going to the cellar door? And is that having an effect on the bar experience or the bar business model? Well, hopefully it's it's raising the experience because it's, you know, it's cr- increasing competition and it's making, you know, bars try to replicate some of what's driving people to breweries that you know, that you know you're going to have knowledgeable servers, you know you're going to have clean draft lines, you know you're going to have, um, you know, different beer styles there and not just, you know, lager and light lager. Um, you know, it may be creating a little bit of pressure on on-premise, on uh, you know, businesses. Um, but collectively, all these breweries, when they're selling at the brewery, are, are still about 1% of the total U.S. beer business. So, you know, we're, we're talking about volume, some volume, but it's not a ton. Um, and, you know, the last thing I, I, w- I would say is that um, it may also be increasing demand. So we actually have seen the percentage of draft sales in the U.S. go up a little bit in the last couple of years. And, and so it's possible that, you know, this is winning occasions back for beer, that we're seeing people because there's now a space that, you know, they want to bring their family. It's not just a bar, but it's a more of a community gathering space that, that there's new opportunities and that we're bringing more people back into beer, which is, has been losing share in the U.S. relative to wine and spirits. What, what does the 
craft beer drinker in the United States look like? I look at the Australian market and 2000 is roughly the watershed where craft beer started to take off. We saw a, a, a influx of uh, breweries. Um, and so anyone who's been with the drinking age being 18 in Australia, uh, anyone who has turned 18 since then is much more likely uh, to be a craft, what I call a craft beer native. They've, they've grown up in a craft beer world. Anyone who's over 40 is probably, you know, who, who did their formative drinking in the, the more mainstream world, maybe gradually getting into craft beer. Um, but it seems to be very much a generational thing here. What's the... Um, typical craft beer drinker in the U.S. like? Well, certainly, you know, you do see it drawn more heavily from the younger generation, but that's true of all beer in the U.S. as well. So, you know, 21 to 34-year-olds are, are a big chunk of, of craft consumption. But, um, you know, we do see it, it becoming more diverse. If you look back 10 or 15 years, it was, you know, very heavily concentrated in 21 to 34-year-olds, um, you know, typically a little bit higher socioeconomic status, so a little bit wealthier, a little bit more educated, you know, a lot of white males. Um, and we've seen that, you know, well, I think that that still holds to a certain extent that the demographics have really started to diversify. Um, you know, one of the stats I was most excited to see recently is that um, young women, 21 to 34 year olds now over index in craft as well. So they're they're drinking more than a percentage of their population. Uh, which I realize is kind of economist speak, but you know basically what it means is that that group is is moving into craft, um, and and hopefully you know as we see more breweries around the country, eighty um, percent of the people in the U.S. now live within ten miles of a brewery. We'll see those demographics broaden as well because people have a brewery in their community, they have a chance to go, they have a chance to try these beers, and um, and that will you know continue to diversify all the people who are who are drinking from small breweries. Is that uh, driving the Brewers Association's recent announcement you're going to crack down on sexist and you know, inappropriate uh, beer naming and labeling? Well, you know, I think there, you know, there are many reasons for that. Um, you know, obviously what we do is, is driven by our board of directors, which um, is, is uh, made up of brewery members. And, um, you know, I think it's something they wanted to do. And, you know, I should be clear, you know, what the Brewers Association is, is doing isn't telling breweries you can't, you know, put whatever you want on your labels. It's that we're not going to support that at our event. So if you uh, win a medal at, at an event that the Brewers Association runs, World Beer Cup or, or GABF, you know, you can't use our intellectual property on a label that, that an outside board deems is offensive. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I mean, you know, one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to invite people to this great party. We think, you know, craft has a lot going for it, that small and independent brewers are, are doing a lot of exciting things. And we think one of the best ways to support them is to, to help encourage people to, you know, invite them in the, in the right way. And that if we, we do things to, you know, make this a more inclusive movement, that more people will want to join and, and in the end, our members can sell more beer. There's been a lot of talk about the small breweries or the independent breweries being bought out by the big um, traditional uh, brewers. Um, in, in Australia, we haven't seen so much of that. We've seen one or two purchases, but there seems to be a lot more uh, what I call professional investment money, mm -hmm. and that's uh, people who, you know, large net worth individuals who, are, who see craft beer as being a good place to put their money and... Uh, uh, you know, investment businesses, uh, venture capital firms wanting to either start or invest heavily in, in, in breweries. Is that something that you're seeing a lot of in the, in, in the U.S.? Um, we have, though it, though it certainly has slowed down a little bit as the growth rates have slowed. Um, you know, if you go back two or three years ago when, you know, growth rates were in the high teens, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, viewed it as a, as a great investment, um, you know, not to mention that it's a fun industry to be involved in. 
Um, and we have seen that slow a little bit as, you know, the, it's gotten more crowded um, as more people have made these investments. So, you know, as investment rushes in, that normally means the returns are going to be lower. Um, but, but yeah, it has become a part of the brewing landscape. And, you know, I think to a certain extent we'll be going forward just because, um, you know, it's now such a large industry that, you know, it can attract real investment. Where does the Brewers Association stand? I know that you've got um, a very strong definition around what um, independent means mm-hmm. to be a member of the, the, the Brewers Association. Where does a, a brewery that, for example, is owned or substantially owned by a venture capital firm um, fit in to, to the model of independence? Sure. Um, and I should be clear that, you know, we don't require that to be a member. We require that to, to be a voting member and to be included in our data set since Part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to tell the story of independent breweries. And so, you know, we need to cleanly show, you know, how independent breweries are doing in the market relative to to non-independent. And, you know, I mean, that's what we do every day. We try to go to go to bat for independent brewers to do things that they wouldn't be able to do individually, collectively. Um, And and so, you know, we we don't hide the fact that, you know, our numbers are you know, measuring independent breweries in the marketplace. We, we do have, you know, events and our, our board of directors, you know, voting members are only independent breweries. So, you know, we welcome the participation of, of acquired breweries in our membership. Many of them continue to, to participate, you know, come to some of our events, work with us on things that improve the condition of beer in the U.S., you know, draft beer quality, things like that. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of challenges in the marketplace and there are a lot of advantages that you have if you're acquired by, a, you know, a global brewer and, so, you know, we're going to make sure we're going to bat every day for um, for those truly independent breweries in the marketplace. But outside of the uh, global brewer-owned um, businesses, is there any issue around, for example, a venture capital firm owning a significant share of a small brewery? Does that see them fall outside of that definition of independence, or can they still retain that uh, mantle of independence? They, they can still retain that mantle of independence, and... You know, that was designed, you know, our board of directors sets that definition, and I think that was designed to um, indicate that there's a difference between a capital infusion and the advantages you get in distribution, in raw materials, um, in a whole bunch of other things when you're part of a, a large brewery network. So, you know, Anheuser-Busch owns 10% of its distribution in the U.S. and has strong influence over, you know, 50% of the distributors here in the U.S. Um, certainly, there are some advantages that come from, you know, a private equity stake that allows you access to capital. But, you know, anybody can go out and get capital from a bank if, if you know, that's the only thing you need. The advantages that you get from a large brewer, you know, are, we think are fundamentally different. Um, and, you know, there's always going to be little gray areas there. But, you know, my what I like to say is just because there's gray doesn't mean you can tell black from white. So um, we, we've continued to allow people with private equity investments to stay in the independent definition and be included in our numbers. Independence is, is something that you have identified as being a factor in drinkers' purchasing decisions, and it's an element you bring up. Do you think those definitions matter to brewers? Do you think when they see something as independent, they come up with a mum-and-pop type operation, or do you think that they see it as being something that has a capital injection from a, a group that maybe owns shares in a mining international mining company and those sorts of investments as well? well you know, I think different people are going to view it differently. Um, you know, on the, the brewer side, you know, certainly... You know, our definition is set by brewers. Our board of directors is brewers. Um, so, so clearly, I think it comes out of a brewer perspective. Um, you know, on the consumer beer lover side, you know, I think it varies. Um, and, and, you know, you're going to see some people who, you know, that's really important for. You know, they want to they wanna buy local and everything. They really want to support, you know, independent businesses and 
as you were just saying, I mean, I think you can think of that in different ways. And, um, but I think some people, you know, it does matter less, but, you know, we're going to tell that story. And, and one of the things we really want is we just want transparency. We want the consumer who cares. We want them to be able to figure out who is who and, you know, then make the choice based on their preferences. But, you know, it's very difficult these days to, to go to, you know, a store and, and see a whole bunch of brands and know, you know, which ones are owned by a global brewer and which ones, you know, are owned by, you know, somebody who lives down the street from you. So, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do is, is really have a lot of transparency there and, um, you know, let the consumer decide with their wallet what they want to support. It's interesting you talk about transparency because this is one of the issues that we're grappling with in Australia. And uh, I, I look at it and I try and work out, you know, on, on one hand, the big brewers, it's easier to identify a beer that's owned by a big brewer and make a conscious decision about whether or not you're going to buy their beer. But when you've got a network of professional investors who may not necessarily uh, have that passion for brewing, but they see it as a business that they can get a over market return from um, and run their businesses that way. Sometimes I wonder whether they are less transparent because they do have the patina of being a small independent brewery. And secondly, whether their interests in growing the culture around beer are the same as a business that has its entire business uh, built in beer. You know, and I think those are valid concerns. And, you know, that's certainly a part of the conversation around ownership that's going on in the U.S. But, um, you know, it's also worth keeping in mind that 99% of the, the breweries in the country don't have investments that look anything like that, that, you know, again, for the vast majority of, of breweries, this isn't a question of do they have a stake from AB or do they have a stake from private equity, but that they're, you know, they're owned by friends and family and bank loans and, you know, all the things that, that typically fund small businesses. So, um, you know, I do think that there are, are things that, you know, some beer lovers, you know, may have valid concerns there, but it's, it really is a very small percentage of the businesses in the U.S. And, um, and so, you know, while you want to talk about it, it's, it's not something that affects the vast majority of businesses. Um, during your presentation at the Craft Brewers Conference, you said that the overall beer market was flat um, and domestic brewers declined by 2% last year, but that craft beer grew. Um, and, and you gave that, I believe, as an example of brewers caring about independence in making their purchasing decisions. Does the Brewers Association have any other evidence to support that brewers care about independence? Um, so we do a survey with Nielsen every year. Um, it's a large survey firm in the US. I'm not sure if they operate in Australia as well, but um, and, you know, one of the questions we ask is we, we ask people what, you know, what are the reasons you're buying, you know, craft? And number one, and, you know, I'm not going to hide this, is always taste flavor, you know, and people are looking for flavor. But, you know, as you get down there and you ask people, you know, what are other reasons, um, you know, 60% of people say um, small and independent factors into their purchase decision. Now, you know, it's probably, again, not the first thing. You know, they're walking up and they want a delicious beer, they want an IPA, you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, I do think we see a lot of people who they want to, you know, purchase more than just, you know, a brand. They want to purchase what's behind that. They want to support their community. Um, you know, if you phrase the question differently and you ask about local, local is also a high, high priority for a lot of beer drinkers. And it's much more important for craft beer drinkers than beer drinkers and for beer drinkers than for wine and spirits drinkers. So, you know, I think that's a part of what's been driving this, you know, taste and flavors, number one. But, you know, people want to support businesses that are going to give back to their community, that are going to be involved, that, you know, they can go and they can talk and meet the brewer. Um, and that's certainly part of the value proposition that craft brings. And, you know, if it's only about, you know, flavor and price point, in the long run, small brewers are going to lose to large brewers that can do it at bigger scale. And, 
the fact that we continue to see, you know, even with large brewer brands in the marketplace, we continue to see the market shift towards small brewers, I think backs up that there is a certain percentage of people that they care about. I mean, that's why we see farmers markets growing. That's why we see all sorts of, you know, small local businesses growing. Um, and we're seeing a shift back in manufacturing away from consolidation in a lot of a lot of artisanal industries. Farmers markets are a great example. I'm not sure whether it's the same in the States, but farmers markets sprung up. People loved the idea of them. And then suddenly you saw a whole lot of other inverted commas farmers markets spring up where people were going to the regular markets, buying it, putting on a straw hat and uh, selling it, not saying I'm a farmer, but giving every appearance that they're a farmer. So uh, the, the consumer who wants to feel that they're buying from a farmer gets that feeling, even though they're not really. Um, is that an issue? Because I know that uh, one of the things that was mentioned at the Brewers Association was that a crafty spin should concern um, independent brewers. Are we seeing the big brewers trying to portray themselves as something other than that which they are? Well, you know, I, I think that's certainly part of their strategy is to, you know, keep some of that cachet from the acquired brands that they bought, you know, and try to, you know, make keep them the appearance of, of remaining independent, remaining small. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's going back to, to one of the things we're always pushing for is just, you know, transparency in the marketplace, you know, disclosure of ownership, things like that. And, um, you know, I, I do think that that's harder to do in an era of information, an era of smartphones. You know, you go to the beer aisle, you know, um, and there was a study, I forget what the exact percentage was, but somebody was looking at uh, millennial phone use and that, you know, a third of them are using their phone when they're in the beer aisle. So, you know, I think it's harder to do that than it was in the past, which is good. And, um, you know, I think we're going to continue to see that that story, that authenticity that, that small brewers bring, you know, be an important part of what they do and an important part of their brands and their marketing. Do you have a read or do you study the growth or performance of the once independent brands and how they go after they've been taken over by the, the big brewers? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's part of what I presented on stage where, you know, certainly some of the acquired brands have, have done very well. You know, infusions of capital, the ability to be scaled up has, has helped them. But, you know, if you look at um, non-independent fuller flavored brands holistically, uh, while they grew last year and they grew faster than the beer category, they didn't grow as fast as small and independent brewers. So, they, they grew at 2% collectively. And, you know, I think that shows that, you know, resources can help and they can provide advantages. And we're certainly seeing many of the acquired brands see, you know, uh, a rate of distribution that, you know, any small brewer would really envy. Um, but that's not, that's not the only thing that matters. And that if you can't tell that brand story, um, you know, if, if you can't transport what made you great in, um, you know, one part of the country to another one, um, that you'll still face challenges and that there's lots of local nimble competitors that, that will have their own advantages. One of the things that goes hand in hand with consumers wanting small and local is that that's the, the current fashion. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if you went back a generation, people actually liked the reassurance that came with large and industrial because it was uh, consistent, it was the same. Is there a risk that what we're seeing now is... Uh, you know, faddish or fashionable, and it can just as easily wash back to the to the other side of the pendulum swing. Y yes, you know, I think frankly, yes, you know, and we do see big, you know, cycles in this over time. Um, you know, I think small brewers have a couple of things going for them now. You know, the the advantages of of digital technology mean that you know even small producers can hit quality and consistency at a at a very high level, um, so that they can gain some of those advantages of of, you know, industrial scale that used to only be available to a f few brewers at a at smaller level. Um, you know, I do think we're, we've seen an evolution there too, where, 
you know, maybe it will swing back again, um, but I think it's going to be a, a slower swing back than before. You know, uh, the millennial generation, um, which is the largest consumer product generation of all time here in the U.S., they're, they're bigger than the baby boomers. Um, you know, clearly that's a part of who they are. Um, and, you know, while the next generation may think very differently, I don't, I don't see that going away anytime soon. So, um, you know, to answer your question, yeah, you know, in the long run, um, in, you know, 20 or 30 years, I, I certainly think we could see this, this big sh- wave that we've seen, you know, really help ro- small brewers rise, um, you know, recede. But I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And I think, you know, small brewers do have a lot of advantages that small local producers didn't have in the past that will make them more able to compete going forward, even if we see, you know, support for local start to, to start to recede. But just to finish up, and this is a bit of a, a tough question to ask, if you were to say there was one great threat and one great opportunity over all others facing craft brewers, what would they be? Well, I think the threat is is pretty clear that, you know, we're seeing both distribution and retail get crowded. And, um, you know, for, for those operators, I mean, the large brewers offer a, a, a tempting alternative where you can, you know, you can have one-stop shopping. Um, and so that their ability to you know, close off distribution and retail through through scale is certainly always a worry for, for small brewers. Um, you know, if I'm going to look at one opportunity, I think that this can still be a, a much wider spread, more diverse industry, and that that's a huge opportunity in bringing new people in, um, you know, not just to beer, but into fuller flavored styles, into local production. And, and there's a lot of people who have Heard that story, loved it, and are now, you know, passionate craft supporters. But, you know, we're at 12% of the market by volume. That means there's 88% of the beer market, not to mention, you know, another huge amount of the beverage alcohol market and wine and spirits that's, that's not crafts. And, um, you know, I think if we continue to, to show what we're doing, you know, not just in terms of the beer, but in communities, um, that there's a lot of opportunity there still to grow. Terrific. Bart Watson, Chief Economist for the Brewers Association. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. In a garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go, Prof. Very, very interesting times ahead. It's great great to, to chat with Bart. It's interesting because he is an economist and he is taking a, an observational brief, you know, using statistics um, as a guide for brewers. But I'm also very mindful that he comes at it from the Brewers Association's point of view and interprets it through the Brewers Association's point of view. And they are an advocacy and lobbying body for craft beer as opposed to, you know, for example, an investment house that's looking at those same statistics and drawing analysis um, and, you know, he, he's going to be looking at it, uh, you know, in a way that, you know, is very pro craft brewers and at pro development of the industry. Yeah, that's right. And I think, too, the, the, the key is and I think we'll feel it more keenly in Australia than perhaps uh, a bigger market with 350 million uh, potential drinkers, you know, versus our meager 26. 
um, obviously less the under 18s and price you know I think is, is going to be the the key driver over the next 12 or 18 months we've, we've spoken about this a couple of times recently but I think the fact that you know up to 80 percent you know the figures show that you know um, even the the rusted on hardcore devotees of, of craft price is still the key driver for for many of them so you, you might sort of say here's a style that I like and here's a number of different breweries that I like but at the end of the day you know, when money talks, bullshit walks. You walk in there and you, and you see, well, in the States, you know, whether it's eight ninety nine, nine ninety nine, ten ninety nine, you know, whatever it is, um, you're going the eight ninety nine m- most times. I agree, and and that's uh, that sort of ties into something that uh, I was minded to talk about it in in the first half of the show, and that is there there was a bit of a discussion on one of the Facebook groups about glassware, um, and you know, glassware is something that I'm you know, really passionate about. Um, and you, know, you and I have talked about we don't want to make beer pretentious, we don't want to make beer, you know, hoity-toity or, you know, alienating. But at the same time, uh, if you do want to, particularly if you're in a venue, if you do want to justify charging a higher price for craft beer, the experience needs to be a more valuable or a more distinctive experience. Um, and you know, that, that's coming back to your point about there is a lot of price pressure. If venues want to charge a premium price for a premium product, I really don't see how you can do that and serve it in a standard pot glass because you know, why would a customer feel in any way positive about buying that more expensive product when the service and all of the theatre and experience around it is the same as a mainstream lager? Yeah. Mm. Hey, um, just sorry to interrupt. I'm completely different. But if I can just, um, breaking news. Um, no, I've just actually had a. I, had a discussion. I actually just heard a message sound in the background. Yeah, there you go. No, I've just had a, a link. I was speaking with my brother-in-law yesterday, who uh, works at the University of Melbourne here in Melbourne, and he was sort of saying, "Oh, look, have you heard about the the new brewing course that's being offered at Melbourne University?" And I said, "No, I haven't." So he's just flicked me through. Paul Holgate from um, Holgate Brewery and uh, Natasha, his wife, who coincidentally met in the um, the chemistry lab at Melbourne University, uh, are now both going back there and doing, uh, what is it, an introduction to beer styles in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences. Um, covers a fair bit of beer making and drinking territory with help from Paul and Natasha. Paul has been a guest lecturer in the highly popular beer theory and craft subjects, which teach a range of skills to would-be beer makers. There you go. Okay, so and it's in the vet vet science faculty. Well, well, yeah, vet and ag sciences. So I'm assuming it comes in the ag science part of things. Although you know, ice and glass, or um, you know, beer, beer used to be clarified using uh, ox legs. So uh, I, I still think that that's and chickens. That's right. And yeah. So I know that this is literally breaking news, but is it designed as a way to get people into brewing or is it just a you know like a little bit like a psychology course where it's just a filler for an arts degree or you know for for another degree what's the um the intent for the course um quote from um this is the subject coordinator dr charles pagel who's a lecturer in veterinary and agricultural sciences and an avid home brewer himself um says the study of craft brewing fits well with the university subjects in winemaking and viticulture breadth subjects allow students to learn something they're interested in from outside the core disciplines of their degree. So uh, many of the students I've spoken to are interested in the recent rise of the craft brewing movement and are keen to learn more about brewing and even to get their hands dirty and have a go themselves. So I think it also involves visiting Holgate uh, for perhaps some you know, hands-on brewing as well. Okay. 
Um, it, it doesn't sound like it's going to exactly address the craft brewing skill shortage. It sounds like it's a little bit of interest to just increase general awareness of beer and brewing processes. Is that your read? Uh yeah, just reading on further, our students will learn the skills to brew good quality beer with additional lectures in biochemistry, agriculture, sustainability, and marketing. Okay, sounds like a very yeah, um, very interesting general purpose course. Yeah, so look, it might be worth getting Paul on to um, to see, you know, how that, fairly obvious, you know, you've got a, an alumni who is a, now a brewer and uh, the current lecturer who's an avid home brewer. And uh, I think the other connection is that um, Paul and Natasha's daughter is uh, at the university as well. Cool. I'll get you to flick that through so we can pop uh, those details in the show notes as well. Yeah. And thanks to my brother-in-law, Chris, for uh, flicking that through as promised. And uh, just while we're talking about skills, funnily enough, skills is one of the discussion panels that we're going to be uh, hosting during Good Beer Week in the Cryo Malt Trade Hub at Beer Deluxe, uh, Fed Square, Wednesday the 17th of May. Uh, you and I are going to be getting the band back together in the same room and uh, following on the success of last year's discussion panels, we're back making beer a conversation, Prof. Yeah, the uh, the Cryer Malt Brewers Lounge upstairs at Beer Deluxe at Fed Square there. And, and look, a heap of fun last year. It'd be great to get uh, a full house because, as I say, the, the guests are interesting, as are the, the discussion topics. And uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity, I guess, to just sort of – it's something you can kind of, you know, wander into, a do a seminar, pop down the stairs if you want to, you know, buy your own beer. If you want to stay up with us, you can uh, stay up, have a beer. Uh, but it's, it's fairly sort of – what is it? I think it's a Banjo Patterson to get in and you get beers for free. So what's not to love? Well, exactly. And whilst it's called the Trade Hub, it's for anyone with interest in beer, um, basically, because we are talking about the three issues we're talking about are sustainability. The loose theme of the whole three sessions is sustainability. One is actual sustainability and have it running a sustainable brew house that keeps in with the craft beer philosophy. Um, the second one is sustainability from the point of view of making sure that we've got the skills. You know, with 400 plus breweries, and uh, depending on who you listen to, between 50 and 100 in planning. You know, where are we going to get the skills to make sure all of those are producing top quality beer? And the third one is sustainability. And are we uh, the future? The future of craft. Yeah. Are we facing a coming beer apocalypse? Too many breweries or too much volume? Is price going to undermine too many uh, people? We've got a really awesome panel of guests without saying any are more important than others i, I guess so the ones that people might most be interested in hearing from we've got ken grossman who's the ceo of sarah nevada peter fielding who's the chair of the craft beer industry association we've got bill savage who is the lead brewer of the barrel aging program at goose island which is a you know very au courant uh, given our discussion today um, we've got Rob Greenaway, the Secretary of the uh, Institute of Brewer, Brewing and Distilling, who's on the uh, skills panel. So uh, we've got a fantastic panel of people coming along. As you said, it is $10. We will have beers from Goose Island and Sierra Nevada, amongst others. So you won't have an empty glass while you're listening to some of the best conversation taking place in uh, craft beer. You can find out more and buy tickets on the Good Beer Week program, as well as if you head along to the Brews News Facebook page, which you should like us already. If you listen to the show, head along to the Brews News Facebook Facebook page, and you'll find information about the panel and links to uh, buying tickets. So there we go. That was a nice little house ad. Yeah. Um, apart from that, 
listeners, if you do like what we do and you'd like to help us out, uh, you can go to iTunes and leave a review. Uh, we don't have any anything in our mailbag this week or any iTunes reviews, but if you are listening to this as you ride your bike, as you jog, as you catch the uh, train to work, you can't leave a review now, but please make a note to uh, leave a review, good, bad or indifferent, and help other people find the podcast and uh, give us your thoughts because we certainly do act on your feedback. If you really like the show and you'd like to help us out by more concrete cash style terms you can jump on the website go to the radio brews news page and become a subscriber and pay five ten or an amount of your choice and become a producer or an executive producer of the show otherwise just uh, shoot us an email you can contact us at producer at brewsnews.com.au and let us know what you think uh, whether you agree with what pete and i've said this show or any other show or topics you would like to hear us discuss in upcoming shows if you see any news come through your news feeds that you'd like to hear what we think please send those through as well Um, and we're more than happy to uh, give our informed or otherwise thoughts on your news as well i'll draw breath actually prof just going back to our um radio brews news during good beer week i posted a event on facebook and as with most things i wasn't sure what sort of photograph to caption it with because it's a discussion panel and i could have put a photo of you know five people sitting around a table talking last year but i posted a photo of your smiling face and mine and it's interesting how many people have commented or remarked that oh is that what you guys look like oh there you go and the funny thing is that i don't you don't what because that was actually well that's actually how i found out that my eldest um follows brews news because she said Gee, you've um, it doesn't look anything like you in that photo. Really? Why is that? Oh, 20, 22 kilos lighter since then. Since you've done the man challenge, you, yeah. you have. But I mean, I still recognise that uh, that warm, open, smiling face. Oh, there you go. Well, there's there's just less of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just back to where it was um, a, a few years before that. Yeah. So uh, that yeah. was a good. It was a good photo. But please, uh, yeah, now if you'd like to join us, uh, there's plenty of ways that you can give us feedback or even come along and hear us record a couple of episodes in May. Uh, Prof, looking ahead to this week, you got anything anything big coming up? Any festivals or events? No, I've got a meeting about some, um, some uh, festivals past and a, a festival new. So uh, stay tuned for that. Nothing, nothing concrete yet, but uh, uh, looking at a, expanding one of the existing festivals to a, a, a rather large regional area that I think has probably been ignored a little bit. So um, hopefully that'll come to fruition. And then uh, we're right into planning for uh, for Good Beer Week and, and Gabs. Uh, which you are very, very much uh, tied up in. Yeah. Yeah. No. So looking forward to it. And then, of course, next next week, next week, week after, we've got the um, Australian International Beer Awards judging. So that'll be that'll be a huge week. That will be a big week. So we'll have to have a bit of a chat offline about how we're going to manage all of those commitments. Uh, make sure that you're available for a podcast. Um, me, oh gee, I'm a little bit the same. Lots of uh, lots of planning, lots of preparation. Really starting to gear up for Good Beer Week and uh, the Cry Malt Trade Hub that we've talked about already. So uh, yeah, that's about me for this week. So Prof, we might sign off and chat again next Wednesday for. For Friday, well, that does, not that that means anyone to, anything to our listeners when we record, but it will be up uh, Friday at three we're aiming for, and we've been pretty good at doing that. Freya's nodding her head sagely. We're trying. <laughs> Let's do it as long as we're trying. We are trying. Some of us more than others. Thanks for listening. <laughs> good on we'll you, Prof. Talk next see week. You, see you all next week.
and we're out. <laughs>